Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of struggling to meet the demands of your own life, you're also caring for an aging parent or a spouse, or maybe you're caring for another member of your family? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we'll hear from the experts, professionals in the field of aging, and people like you, unsung heroes rising to the occasion of caring for a loved one and finding unexpected rewards along the way. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. Healthy aging, or as we like to say on this show, aging well and wisely, has the potential to reduce health care costs over the long term and to empower people to take control of their physical and emotional well-being. So what exactly is healthy aging, and how do we go about promoting it? Well, we're going to talk about all this and more with today's guest. Sue Peshin is president and CEO of the Alliance for Aging Research, a nonprofit organization dedicated to advancing science and enhancing lives through a variety of activities and initiatives, from promoting policies that improve the lives of older adults and their caregivers to creating provider and consumer health programs. Sue's work with the Alliance hit home when a member of her own family faced a health crisis several years ago, but I'll let her explain that. She joins us from Washington, D.C. Sue Peshin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Jana. It's great to be on. Before we get to the work of the Alliance, tell us a little bit about your upbringing. I know the older relatives in your life inspired you Mm -hmm. to take on this work. Give us a little bit of context here. Absolutely. So I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I was very, very fortunate because I actually knew uh, all four of my grandparents on both my dad and my mom's side, and I knew two of my great-grandmothers. And I actually knew one of my great-grandmothers until the age of 13, so I really spent a lot of time with her and spent a lot of time in the community where she lived. So I had a lot of exposure to older people growing up. And they always were sort of the the sort of typical matriarch, patriarch figures in the family that we really looked up to and that led a lot of family celebrations and handed down a lot of recipes and advice and all of that. So I had a very positive experience around seniors in my growing up years. And at the same time that I had those great experiences, I also, you know, lived through their passing. Mm -hmm. And I saw what they experienced prior to their passing. You know, one of my grandmothers had uh, ovarian cancer, so we went through that. Um, A grandfather of mine went through uh, chronic heart failure. Another grandfather had heart disease. Uh, And then my other grandmother also went through cancer herself. So, you know, I did see uh, how older people are treated in the clinical setting. You know, oftentimes I think there is this sort of point of view, you know, which is true that we all do need to die of something, but oftentimes older adults are sort of dismissed because of that fact that they're getting up there Mm -hmm. and it's a little bit more challenging and and all of that, that they don't necessarily deserve the same options or to be treated in a similar fashion that a younger adult might be. Mm -hmm. And so it was just very eye-opening for me to go through those experiences with them. 
And then also just sort of the end of life issues that come along with that as well and being exposed to that in, in my teenage years. Mm-hmm. The point you make about older adults being treated differently is interesting to me because not everybody wants mm-hmm. to sort of quietly fade away. I mean, there are a lot of people who fight for their lives even in older age and deserve that respect. So are your parents still alive? Both my parents are still alive, yeah. And I just, um, just in response to what you just said, which I think is a really good point, I would just add, you know, I think a lot of times too, older people don't just want to live necessarily for the sake of living, Mm -hmm. um, but they want to have quality of life in Mm -hmm. their later years. And quality of life changes as we age. And it is very individual too. There's Mm -hmm. not sort of one bucket that you can put what quality of life means for an older individual. So oftentimes, even if you do have, for example, limited mobility, or um, if you have trouble with vision or hearing or things like that, I mean, certain challenges, you can actually make adjustments or you can address medically, but some of them you can't. And depending on the person's life and what they value, they might be able to feel like certain things are manageable and they may feel like other things aren't. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those are conversations and conversations take time. And healthcare providers don't always have that time. So that's one of the reasons why we do what we do here is to really educate providers and and the public and be there for family caregivers to talk through those issues because it really does change as we go through life. What matters to us as kids or as young adults changes as uh, as we go through the aging process. Mm -hmm. Tell us about your parents and do they have any health challenges themselves? Actually, I'm very lucky. Both my parents are still alive. They're both living in Pittsburgh, where I grew up. Mm -hmm. And uh, my dad actually just retired only a couple of years ago from uh, more than 40 years in pediatrics. Oh, wow. And he's still very active. He actually still does rounds once a week. So he's not fully retired, but he's a big hit with, uh, you know, with new moms. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think the practice still recognized that. So they asked him if he would continue doing that. He does struggle with some arthritis and bursitis, but he keeps as active as possible. He exercises continuously, you know, every week and stays active by being social and and is a great grandfather to my kids and my brother's kids. and he has stepkids as well. So he's doing terrific. And how old is um, my he? Mom, he is 74. Okay. And my mom is 72. Mm-hmm. And she has had a number of health challenges, primarily related to arthritis and some fibromyalgia, a lot of pain-related issues. Mm-hmm. And persistent pain is an important issue to us here at the Alliance for Aging Research, not just because of my personal experience, but because it's an under-recognized issue in the older adult population. And mm-hmm. with a lot of the focus in recent months on opioids and all of that, right. we've been sort of outspoken on the issue. But mm-hmm. So she's dealt with that as, as well as some other chronic conditions with blood pressure, kidney issues. I mean, she's unfortunately an all-too-typical sort of case of an individual that has a lot of multiple chronic conditions as she's aged. Mm -hmm. Um, The wonderful thing that I really admire about my mom is she always has a positive attitude. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I really do think, and actually the research shows, that that actually does make a difference in not only your coping skills for getting through things like that, but your actual 
quality of life and your health status. And she just amazes me. Uh, she's been through a number of back surgeries, neck surgery, and just, you know, continues to have a smile on her face and just love and wanting to do for others uh, no matter what she's going through. And I really think that those are aspects that have just helped her along the way. And we're just really thankful that that they have. Mm -hmm. So they're still living in the same house that you grew up in? No, actually, my parents have been divorced for oh, a number of years. So okay. my dad's remarried. Okay. And my mom, actually, both my parents are remarried okay. and doing very, very well. I think that's also, you know, helped them a lot having supportive partners in their yeah, life. Yeah. And that makes a big difference, too. So mm -hmm. I just, I feel very lucky. I consider my mom my hero, and I adore my dad, and so I'm, I'm a lucky person. And Pittsburgh is a great town to grow up in. I've been there several times. Oh, yeah. <laughs> go Steelers. Oh, that's awesome. And, <laughs> and I'm go Pens. Still, everybody, everybody in my office knows I'm a rabid Steelers fan. <laughs> <laughs> and you see Steelers and, and Penguins jerseys all over the country. Oh, I know. We, <laughs> are, we are everywhere. You can't go anywhere <laughs> right. without saying, yeah, yeah. Well, before we go on into the work of the Alliance, can you tell us a little bit about the sort of health crisis you faced uh, with your husband and what that was all about? Sure. My husband and I faced um, a crisis with heart disease about 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago now, actually. We were in the process of getting some more life insurance because I was pregnant with our second son mm -hmm. and, you know, just sort of recognizing, okay, we probably need to ramp up a little bit more because now we're going to have two kids. And you go through that process where you have to take various medical tests. And he had a pretty high increase in his cholesterol. And his dad had ha actually had a heart attack before the age of 50. Mm. And his dad survived the heart attack. You know, and we always thought it was maybe related to his lifestyle. He had previously been a smoker and wasn't, you know, an exercise guy. And my husband was a runner, a track and cross-country guy and relatively healthy. So, you know, I said, let's, let's just be careful and go in and see if maybe it makes sense to get a stress test. Mm -hmm. So he went to the doctor and at first they said, well, you're really fit. We could just test you again in six months or so. And we really pushed, so they gave him a stress test, and it did show something on there, but they said it was sort of inconclusive, and more accurate test would be to go through the imaging, the nuclear stress test. Mm -hmm. So he went ahead and did that, and then they saw something again. And ironically, I mean, one of the things I learned through this process is the more in shape you are, mm -hmm. <laughs> the more sort of difficult it is to recognize, you know, when something is really a blockage. Yeah. So they were kind of going back and forth again, saying to us, we could wait a little while, he could have it done again, or they could do a cardiac cath, which is really considered the gold standard. So we said, please go ahead and do this cardiac cath. So he went into the calf unit and he ended up having a 90% blockage in his LAD artery, which the cardiologist told me afterwards is, I don't know, affectionately nicknamed the Widowmaker by a cardiologist because that's when, you know, a lot of folks just drop dead. Oh, so we... Yeah, I felt like we were really, really lucky. The process was really interesting being at the hospital because while I was in the waiting room, they actually announced a code blue. 
And there were a number of families sitting with me in the waiting area. And we were all just sort of looking at each other, (laughs) like, what is going on? (laughs) And I had a bit of a terms of endearment moment (laughs) where I I sort of walked into (laughs) the cardiac cath area and just said really loud, what is going on? (laughs) And because I wanted to make sure, you know, we people didn't know, like, which loved one was in which cath unit. Uh Uh And they told me, oh, it's not your husband. It's in this other cath unit and I went back and sat down but the other families were worried and it actually ended up changing the hospital policy after that because I said it's probably a good idea if maybe you can either mute it in the waiting area (laughs) or have somebody come out and let people know you know which person is affected Mm -hmm. so that was a really um, crazy experience for us to go through and thankfully He's been great. He watches his diet. He exercises, but he has to, you know, continue to watch and take medication and go for testing um, every six months to a year, uh, depending on the tests. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's something that we just have to keep an eye on. But Mm -hmm. I'm really thankful that I was pregnant with my second kid. And, you know, we went through those testing. It was really, it was luck. I consider it luck and just feel very fortunate that he's still with us and and that was it's, about 10 years ago, you said, mm-hmm. earlier? It was about 10 years ago. Okay. Yeah, and ironically, I mean, sort of just a strange coincidence, the National Institute on Aging that we work very closely with uh-huh. and, you know, advocate for to make sure they have their funding, they're the institute at the National Institutes of Health that funded the original research on the stent, on the cardiac oh, wow. stent. Oh, huh. Yeah. Well, so, uh, just getting back to your parents for a, just for a moment, how often do you get to see them? A few times a year, we, I mean, it's a very easy drive to Pittsburgh. Right. So Good. we just throw our guys in the car and get on the road and go to Pittsburgh. Uh-huh. And then also they usually visit with their significant others once or twice a year. Uh-huh. So we see each other a lot. That's I try, great. That's great. try to make it a priority. They're very important to us. And they're all still driving? My mom actually is no longer able to drive because okay. of the surgeries that she's had. She does have limited mobility, but my stepdad drives. So okay. he, he drives her. And then my dad, yes, he can drive. It sounds like they have a lot of support around them. That's really important. Yeah, I'm really thankful. I mean, my brother still lives in Pittsburgh with his family. And, you know, I have a stepsister that lives there on my dad's side and a stepbrother on my mom's side. So, yeah, I was the one that moved out of the area. But a lot of people who grow up in Pittsburgh end up staying there. And Mm -hmm. so we're Mm -hmm. we're lucky for that in terms of our family. Very lucky. Lots of people around us. And I also, I didn't mention this before, but I still do have a grandmother that is 94 years old, uh, Dorothy Melnick, who lives Mm -hmm. in Churchill, Mm -hmm. and who I love very much. My grandfather on my mom's side um, remarried after my grandmother, who died of ovarian cancer, passed. I was around 14, I guess, when they when he remarried. And Dorothy's amazing. She's still cognitively doing well and living with her daughter in Pittsburgh. And she actually was able to come to my older son's bar mitzvah this past December. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah, and a bunch of my colleagues got to meet her. And she's just a terrific lady. And she lives with her daughter, did you say? Uh-huh. Well, uh-huh. her daughter, I should say her daughter lives with her because uh-huh. it's actually it was her home with my grandfather. And her daughter moved in with her. And, you know, she does have uh, someone who comes to the house and helps out. Right, uh, right. Knock on wood. Thank God doing well. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, let's talk about the Alliance. Give us a little bit of background. Why was the Alliance founded? I know this is 30 years old. Tell us about what its primary goals are. Sure. 
So the Alliance for Aging Research was founded back in 1986, so we are celebrating our 30th anniversary this year, although I tell everyone that we only uh, feel like we're 29. (laughs) And Dan Perry founded the group, and he previously actually worked on Capitol Hill for Senator Alan Cranston from California who was very much an advocate for healthy aging. He was an exercise fanatic Mm -hmm. and really a proponent of biomedical research. And at the time, back in the mid-80s, there were a number of senior groups that were in existence at the time, but they were primarily focused on direct senior services or on entitlement programs like Social Security and Medicare. But there really was not a national voice talking about the importance of research as a way to enhance healthy aging. So Dan started the alliance by primarily focusing on the National Institutes of Health and raising the profile of biomedical research there, and specifically at the National Institute on Aging, which is one of the 27 institutes and centers that make up NIH. And he became a leader on the stem cell research fights on the Hill, on the battle to double the NIH budget at the turn of this century, Mm -hmm. and really had a number of successes under his belt while he was here. And the group actually expanded quite substantially after he started the group to not only work in public policy, but to also do a lot of work in health education as well. So now we've expanded to do quite a bit on FDA regulatory issues. We run two coalitions, one that's focused on Alzheimer's disease Mm -hmm. called Accelerate Cures and Treatments Mm -hmm. for Alzheimer's Disease, and another called Aging in Motion Mm -hmm. that focuses on sarcopenia, and that's age-related muscle wasting. Okay. And those coalitions bring together folks from industry and uh, academic settings and other federal agencies, along with patient advocacy organizations, to interact with the FDA review divisions that take a look at drugs or devices or other products for those diseases to talk about issues in clinical development for older patients. And that sounds very sort of wonky and detail-y, <laughs> and it is. But you're um, in D.C., so that's it, okay. Yeah, yeah. But we do, and we do it because nobody else is doing it. There really wasn't a focus on really understanding the experience of the older patient, what matters to them, and to sort of talk through with these review divisions, have that type of dialogue on what matters and what would be acceptable and, and are there ways that we can sort of accelerate the process in a safe and effective way. So the ACT-AD Coalition has been around now for a little over 10 years, and the AIM Coalition is going on five years this year. So they've been very successful in the AIM Coalition. We actually just had a big success this year where the sarcopenia, the disease of sarcopenia, is newly recognized now by the CDC with an ICD-10 code. So it can be diagnosed by physicians and coded. So uh, that's a very exciting development, and there's a lot going on in the pharmaceutical industry to develop treatments for it. Sarcopenia can really increase older adults' risk of falls, hip Hmm. fractures. So it's, you know, it's a critical issue. And and folks have different degrees of it as they age. We all develop it to a certain degree, but some folks have it more than others. And for that reason, you know, we feel like it's an area where, you know, we can sort of look at are there interventions available to actually help people. So we work on those two issues. We've actually gotten involved in uh, healthcare-associated infections quite a bit, looking at those issues in the long-term care setting. 
On the education side, we have a silver book series where we take a look at the human impact, the economic impact, and areas of innovation in different disease and condition areas. And those are highly popular with policymakers and folks at the state health departments and area agencies on aging, just to make sure that they're using the most up-to-date statistics and they can get to the original sources. Mm -hmm. Um, Because we found there's a lot of statistics that are always floating around out there, and Mm -hmm. we wanted to make sure that people knew from where they were speaking. More important than ever today, I think, in this political climate, right. to make sure you're talking about facts, not just feelings. And so we do that. We also have a number of animated pocket films. I know that August so, is National Immunization Awareness Month, so we got to talk it, about that. It is, yes. And thank you for mentioning that. It is National Immunization Awareness Month. And we did just develop a, a, a short animated film on the importance of vaccination for older adults. It's called Our Best Shot. Mm-hmm. And folks can find all of our pocket films at agingresearch.org slash pocket films. We have them on a whole variety of topics. On vaccines, you can go to our agingresearch.org slash vaccines page, and you can find that film there along with some of the other resources that we've created on the issue of vaccines. But we started creating these pocket films because You know, we thought seeing things visually is oftentimes better or, you know, easier. It's just a different mode of communication for older adults than necessarily handing them a pamphlet with very small type, you know, or even sometimes talking to people when you're doing it in a medical appointment. Sometimes it's hard to absorb things. Mm -hmm. And so having a resource that clinicians can direct patients and caregivers to after the appointment or even at the appointment in the waiting area is sometimes it's just nice to have an additional type of media to be able to look at. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but if you Google heart valve disease online, you get some real scary video of open heart disease. (laughs) And that's not always what you want to see. And we don't make these cartoonish. You know, we're not trying to minimize the seriousness of a lot of these conditions, but we're trying to make it's something that's watchable and Mm -hmm. that teaches people and that empowers them to ask the questions that they need to ask. Mm -hmm. So are these uh, films available elsewhere besides your website? It sounds like you were maybe distributing them in hospitals and such. Is that the case? Yes, we have been reaching out to hospital systems, healthcare systems, health departments, working on this latest one on vaccines with area agencies on aging. So for aging departments to use them, senior centers, mm-hmm. long-term care facilities. I mean, it's free. It's free for anybody to download. They're also on our YouTube site, so you can search for it on YouTube. So, And a lot of organizations are also sort of taking it up, AARP just tweeted about it yesterday. The CDC is going to be posting it soon. So we like to spread the word as far and wide as possible. That's really great. Well, you spend so much time in hospital waiting rooms watching silly TV. Maybe they could be on those screens as well. Yeah, and a lot of hospitals and waiting rooms now are trying to put up content. Uh-huh. So we are working with some of the companies that provide that content. Sometimes the you know a given health system or doctor's office wants to have their own stuff. Yeah. 
but oftentimes they just like put it on a loop and it's like enough already. You mm-hmm. know, you want to see something right. new. Right. So we're trying to sort of fill that void with accurate information. And all the pocket films that we produce are reviewed by expert reviewers. We get the top folks from around the country. In the case of this latest one that we did on vaccines, the chief medical officer for the Geisinger Health System, which you probably heard of mm-hmm. from uh, mm-hmm. the Pennsylvania area, um, he was one of our reviewers. The American Pharmacists Association participated in reviewing it, and then the National Area Association on Aging also reviewed it as well. And we did run it by the CDC and the National Vaccine Program Office. That's great. We want to make sure that the information that we're putting out there is as accurate as possible and, you know, as understandable as possible. Okay, so with regard to this um, National Immunization Awareness Month, let's kind of drill down just for a moment and tell us about the campaign and its goals. There's more than just the film. There's, There's a workshop kit that goes with this. Is that right? There's going to be. That's not quite available yet. We released the video first just because this is the Awareness Month and Uh we wanted folks to have access to it. And there's a lot of events happening throughout the month of August. And actually, the first week of August, the week that we're in now, the focus is on adults. And oftentimes, that's, you know, that's minimized. Most of the time when you hear about vaccines, you hear about it related to kids because they have to get it in order to go to public school. But you don't hear it so much about the importance for older adults in particular. Uh And they're the ones oftentimes, often along with kids, that are disproportionately affected with hospitalizations or even with death related to infectious disease. Mm -hmm. So it's really, really important that they get the vaccines that are recommended for them at the ages and times that they're recommended. There's been a lot of myths going around, a lot of them focused on kids, but just vaccines in general, and we're trying to debunk those myths. We really feel like older adults oftentimes, as I mentioned in my own family, serve as the leaders in their family, a guiding voice, Mm -hmm. and they can really help debunk some of these myths and just through their own example by getting the vaccines that are recommended for them, you know, influence other family members and just increase the immunity within their own family as well as in the general community. Because these, you know, these debates, this myth-driven debate stuff that's gone on, even up to the presidential campaign level, mm-hmm. is is ridiculous. Yeah. Well, long-term care is an issue that most politicians don't want to touch. But since it is an election year, let's put it out there. What strategies um, has the alliance employed sort of in an attempt to advance e- effective long-term care or health policies? Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. In terms of long-term care issues, one of the main areas that we've inserted ourselves into the conversation is around healthcare-associated infections. Mm -hmm. CMS put out what everybody is sort of coining the mega rule last fall, which was really the first overhaul of regulation for nursing homes in about 30 years. Right. We should clarify Uh, for the uninitiated that CMS is the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which we're all familiar with. Go ahead. Yes, yes. No, I appreciate that. I'm in the D.C. bubble, and oftentimes I use acronyms. So anyway, what I mean, the, the good news is that CMS included language about infections and infection control in the rule. But the language that they had in there was really general. 
And the fact of the matter is, is that um, nursing homes and uh, assisted livings, long-term care in general, is way behind where the hospital system and acute care systems are when it comes to infection surveillance, infection control, antibiotic stewardship. And antibiotic stewardship, for those who don't know, is really just making sure that doctors are prescribing antibiotics appropriately, they're not prescribing them when they shouldn't be prescribed, and that they're tracking it appropriately. Mm-hmm. Um, what a great sure phrase, because, antibiotic uh, stewardship. Yeah. Right. So the language that was in there was very, very general, and we you know, inserted ourselves into the issue just to bring the issue of healthcare-associated infections among seniors to light. This is a very vulnerable population when they're in the nursing home. And oftentimes, you know, a lot of the folks that are there are cognitively impaired in some way. Right now, the only infections that nursing homes track are related to UTI Mm -hmm. and pneumonia. Mm -hmm. And they only track them on a quarterly basis because the system that they use only requires them to report on a quarterly basis. Hmm. But for real infection control, you need to be doing that on a monthly basis. That's what's available in the hospital setting. Uh, You need to be able to identify where those infections are happening in your facility, if they're happening more than once, how they're being addressed and controlled for. And none of that is really happening right now in the nursing home setting, except in particular pockets where they've just made the decision to be a little bit more careful Mm -hmm. about the issue. Right. There's no uniformity. Um, Mm -hmm. Right. And then there's also no reporting. Uh, CMS does have nursing home compare that consumers can right. go to online, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but there's no type of measure that nursing homes have to meet to report on to say whether they have an antibiotic stewardship program or not. And that's particularly important for seniors because C. difficile is becoming an increasingly common infection in nursing home settings. And that's it's a horrible gastrointestinal infection Hmm. that can kill you. Hmm. And the rates in nursing homes were found by the CDC to be much, much higher than they are in the general population. And older folks are much more likely to die from the infection. What's Um, the name of that again? Can you repeat that? Yeah, it actually stands for colostrum difficile. C. diff is what it's called for short. And the, Uh the CDC released a report actually last summer on the incidents in nursing homes. The data on infection in nursing homes is about 10 years old overall. Wow. So again, it's way behind where the hospital setting is. So we really don't have an accurate picture. I mean, I think it's reasonable to say that you're going to expect higher rates of infection in these settings and Mm -hmm. in these populations because they are vulnerable, they're older, they tend to have multiple conditions going on, and they're living together. They're not just patients, they're residents. So they're being exposed on a day-to-day basis to each other and to the people that work there. And then the other issue that we did take a stand on going back to vaccines is just making sure that any individuals that work in these settings that have direct contact with the residents should get their vaccines. You know, they should get their annual right. flu shot. It's kind of a no-brainer. Um, it is a no-brainer, but it's not a requirement. And we feel like CMS, for any facility that wants to take advantage of getting Medicare dollars, they should make their health care workers get the flu vaccine. 
Right. Nursing homes are primarily getting their revenue from Medicaid and Medicare. So this is a taxpayer issue. It is. Yeah. It is. And it's a state issue, you know, because the majority, Medicare only pays up to a certain amount Mm -hmm. and then a certain amount of days and then Medicaid usually kicks in. So it's an issue that affects a lot of low-income seniors, families. Definitely it's a tax issue. It's a federal funding issue. And Mm -hmm. that's why I think they have... They have much more hand in this than they are assuming. So Mm -hmm. we're pushing them quite hard to really, you know, take the mantle of this issue because it really is about the health and safety of this population. And I think when a loved one makes the difficult decision to institutionalize someone that they care about, they're not necessarily thinking, okay, they're going to go into this facility and die of a horrible infection. Right. You know, they're thinking this, they're going to be able to sort of live out their last days with dignity right. and with good health care and not have to worry about something like this. But it is, it's a much bigger problem than it's currently recognized. Yeah. Sue, can you talk for a moment about how you think America's aging demographics uh, affect caregivers of the future and how the Alliance is advocating for caregivers? Sure. I mean, caregiving, family caregiving has really changed over the last couple of decades in particular. I'm sure you've heard the term and probably a lot of your listeners have if they're not living the experience themselves of sandwich caregiving. There's a lot of people now who are taking care of a parent while at the same time still parenting Mm -hmm. children in the home. So that's becoming an increasing issue that impacts employment and the ability to adequately support loved ones in the home. Teenagers are increasingly being asked to help shoulder the burden, especially Mm -hmm. for folks with Alzheimer's disease, if you have grandparents that are living in the home. So that's changed a lot. And just in terms of being able to recognize what is adequate care in the home and in the community and how can people stay in the home if they choose to stay in the home, what types of policy needs do we have there aside from, you know, just having a waiver program? How else can we recognize that folks need not just financial assistance but also respite? Oftentimes you talk to family caregivers and there's a lot of proposals being thrown out about giving tax breaks or other types of economic breaks, and those are all very valid and very much needed. But oftentimes if you talk to a family caregiver, they just they need an actual break break. Yep. And lifespan respite, which is actually something that uh, Hillary Clinton, when she was senator from New York, was a proponent of and passed the Lifespan Respite Care Act. That, Did that get uh, funded? It uh-huh. did. It was originally actually estimated that they needed about fifty million a year, and they get closer to about five million a year. Oh, <laughs> so gosh. it's very much underfunded, and it does represent the lifespan. So uh-huh. it's meant for family caregivers of kids with issues all the way up to seniors. So uh-huh. it's for across the board. And then, of course, there are some actual national family caregiver support program that are geared more towards the senior population and specific Mm -hmm. programs around Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. But all these things are very important for family caregivers, and there's a lot being done by national caregiving groups that we coordinate with, like 
the National Alliance for Caregiving. Mm-hmm. AARP has really stepped up at both the state and the federal level. They actually helped with the National Alliance for Caregiving to introduce the first caregiver caucus right. on the yeah, Hill. Caucus. So there's a lot of good things that are happening, a lot of recognition. Back in 2010, when Vice President Biden was working on his middle class task force, and I was actually previously at the at a national Alzheimer's organization, mm-hmm. they were recognizing these issues back then and gradually started to try to increase the amount of funding for some of these programs. They're nowhere near where they need to be. Yeah. So I think that whoever is our next president is going to be confronted with these issues more and more as the population is aging. But I do think that there is momentum, and I think that there is much more of a voice of the family and caregiver, and we're we're planning on being along for the ride. That's great to hear. We need your yeah. support. <laughs> it just seems <laughs> like there's you. this huge cultural shift that's needed. Alzheimer's research, for instance, just as an example, gets um, a lot of funding. I know that you um, published policy recommendations before coming to the Alliance for implementation of the National Alzheimer's Project Act, NAPA, mm-hmm. and that act resulted over $100 million in federal funding going to finding a cure for Alzheimer's but the same act also allocated a mere $10 million for Alzheimer's care services and education, which mm-hmm. is less than $2 per person, mm-hmm. um, over mm-hmm. 5 million people. So I'm really, con- I'm really concerned about the, you know, this cultural shift. It's very slow, but it is happening, and I'm really happy to hear that you guys are coordinating with these other grassroots organizations like Caring Across Gen and all that. Yeah, so the, I, it's great that you mentioned you know, the National Advisory Committee for uh, Research, Care, and Services on Alzheimer's Disease because they are the ones that make recommendations to the Secretary of Health and Human Services mm-hmm. for the, the national plan. And they, they've shifted focus, actually, this year to focusing a lot more on care issues for the patients, mm-hmm. but then also family caregiver issues. And they are in discussions as we speak. They actually just had a meeting this past Monday at the National Institute on Aging to talk about doing a research care summit. So uh, a a research summit, but focused on programs that help caregivers and help patients that are Mm non-pharmacologic. So, you know, not as much focused on the, on the cure. The cure is obviously very, very important, but as you know, you know, that we've had, experienced so many failures over the last several years right. that we're a little, you know, we're a little ways away from that at least. So in the meantime, you have millions of people struggling and there really isn't a lot of research going on in the care area. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is to really encourage that. And they have folks on the advisory committee now that lead those types of research studies and they're really needed. You know, they should be available Medicare wide. People should be able to get reimbursement for them just like they do for Aricept, you know, to treat Alzheimer's disease. Because ultimately that's what we're going to need to look at to reduce rates of institutionalization and ultimately save money. Mm -hmm. Because it's really when the caregiver gets exhausted and continence issues and behavioral issues start to overwhelm that that's when institutionalization becomes the reasonable option and no judgment in any way, you know, when that happens. 
It's very intense to care for somebody with dementia, but if federal agencies really truly are looking to both improve care experiences and save money, they need to look at both sides of the coin. Mm -hmm. Do you see any particular policies being floated by either of the presidential candidates that you see uh, as hopeful in terms of long-term care or any of these issues we've been talking about? I do know that Secretary Clinton did an event a number of months ago in support of Alzheimer's disease research and called for $2 billion a year for Alzheimer's disease research at the NIH. So Mm -hmm. she has really taken a stand on that particular disease area. She does also have positions around long-term care and caregiver issues, and those are all discussed in depth on her (laughs) website. In terms of Mr. Trump, I'm not as aware of his positions in the area. He has not publicly been outspoken on these issues, but, you know, they haven't gone through the debates yet, and I'm sure that'll be an issue that comes up, and I'm anxious to see what they both have to say. Me too. So let me ask, how has your work affected you in terms of your own perceptions of aging, if at all? And are you concerned about your own long-term care? I would say that my work... First of all, my work is incredibly fulfilling. I feel very lucky to do what I do, so I'm very grateful to be in the position that I'm in. I think, if anything, it sort of validated the experience that I had growing up, Mm -hmm. that there is a place for speaking up for folks as they reach their senior years in terms of the experience that they have in the clinical setting and as they get older, that all of us deserve to be treated with dignity and to have our well-being at the forefront no matter what age we are. So I think that it's really confirmed that and it's made me feel even more committed. In terms of long-term care for myself, sure, yeah, I absolutely think about it. You know, I think doing this type of work makes you appreciate your health and makes you appreciate being alive and the loved ones around you even more. And it does make you think about how the loved ones around you are going to be treated when they have to face something. Mm -hmm. And when I have to face something and other people in my family. So absolutely, it makes me think about that. I think that our approach to long-term care in this country is deplorable. And we really do need to examine it thoroughly. It's going to take a lot more than just having like a long-term care commission or, you know, recommendations. I mean, we've had those for years and years and years, and the population is exploding as we speak, and it's not going to go away. And we're either going to drown in bankruptcy with our entitlement programs, or we're going to face it. One way or the other, we're going to have to confront it. I do this work because I think that we don't lose value as we age. If anything, we gain value and we bring value to our culture and the country and that should be respected. And there's so much more I think we can learn as a society the more that we embrace and and cherish the older people that are in our culture. I think a lot of other countries do it a lot better than we do here in the United States. So there's a lot to be done, and I feel passionate about it. I was lucky enough to experience it growing up, and I want to do all I can to make people aware of the benefits of aging, the value of aging. Aging matters in medical science, in clinical settings, in health, and in life, and we have a lot to gain from it. So that's why I do what I do. Well, that sounds great. Is there anything else you'd like to leave with the listeners? Just if this conversation does anything for you to pick up the phone and call 
an older adult that's in your life and make the connection. It's never too late to do that. And you'll gain a lot more than you'll lose in the few minutes it might take to do it. So please make those connections and keep making them for the rest of your life. It's going to matter to you as you get older as well. They're advancing science and they're enhancing lives. For more information about the amazing work being done on your behalf by the Alliance for Aging Research, go to the AgeWise website and check out all of our links to this great organization. Sue Peshen, President and CEO of the Alliance for Aging Research. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Dana. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us. The AgeWise podcast is produced and edited by me, Jana Panaritis, and you can listen to the show and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The AgeWise podcast is also distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk Radio Network, the 24-7 streaming and on-demand network that's always on for you. And don't forget to check out our website for more amazing caregiving stories from the field. Remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours. 